Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is Maersk Innovation with my friend Erez Agamoni. How's it going, Erez? All good. How about yourself, Joe? Doing great, doing great. Could you pronounce your name? So I might have I might have botched a little bit. No, you did it well. Erez Agamoni. That's perfectly all right, good. All right, all right, all right. I'm excited to talk to you about this topic. So please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. So I'm right now based in New Jersey, and this is where I'm calling from my office in New Jersey. So what is your title over at Maersk? So I'm Senior Vice President for Innovation and Strategic Growth for North America. I joined Maersk about 12 years ago. But before you go any further than that, what I, I know what Maersk does, but what, what, uh, what does your company do? All right. So Maersk basically historically known as one of the largest shipping container shipping line in the world. But for many years now, we have decided not to be just a shipping line, but really support our customers on the end-to-end. So we are basically an end-to-end integrator of container logistics. We're moving cargo all over the world. And and where are you guys based? Ah, The headquarters is in Copenhagen, Denmark. Excellent. And we have offices all over the place. Yeah, and so guys, if you've probably seen the ship, I'm, I'm thinking most people who listen have probably seen a Maersk container somewhere, now, maybe in your maybe in your warehouse or the building, rail yard, but it's it's M A E R S K Maersk. And uh, we were talking before we hit record the other day. Well, we were talking the other day, and I mentioned uh, I looked it up. Maersk is like a, a hundred, hundred and twenty years old, I think, and has like a hundred thousand employees worldwide. <laughs> I mean, it's a juggernaut, and probably half the stuff in your house it came over on a Maersk boat. <laughs> so it's 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 all around us. We just don't recognize the impact Maersk. I, I would I would su- suggest that probably nobody listening to this podcast hasn't been touched by Maersk indirectly or directly. <laughs> This is the logo. Very, very easy to recognize, by the way. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who are listening, the, the uh, on a podcast is just uh, without video. It's just that that blue star. And uh, yeah, you guys, you again, Maersk is a monster, a monster of a company. Well, I mean, in a positive way, but so I'm excited to get into this topic. So, what is your title again? A senior Vice President for Innovation and Strategic Growth. Oh my goodness. So what does that mean? What is, why did they create your job? Okay. Uh, basically, uh, uh, we, we're trying to find ways to improve the service that we give our customers to bring it uh, with, with technologies, with innovation, with different uh, mindset. I, I, there is an interesting uh, quote that I saw the other days from uh, Professor Harari which which basically say the light bulb was not created by continuous improvement of the candle. I quite like that quote because continuous improvement, don't get me wrong, is a super important thing. You need to always move yourself forward, but sometimes you need a big leap of change and, and right. 
kind of jump to a new technology or new way of doing things. It doesn't have to be all technology. And that's where the innovation comes to mind. And we're trying to kind of help the supply chain world change itself with, with new innovative ideas. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I'm, from my background, continuous improvement, like in automotive and product development, where I came from originally, and also supply chain. You always are thinking continuous improvement, continue. So that it's it's a it's constant. But then there's also has to be that transformative, which is usually the transformative stuff. Normally is offline. You just can't say, "Hey, today we're going to trans transform this." So you've, that's why your function was your, your job and your department was created so you could focus on some of that stuff that is really. It's going to have a huge impact, but it's it it's it's also uh, can't be done overnight. Of course. So anyway, I noticed a little accent there. So that's uh, you're not from Copenhagen. So uh, w- w- let's talk a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined Maersk. Of course, of course. So the accent is actually not Danish. I'm from originally from Israel. Uh, where I grew up, I've interviewed so many people from Israel. I'm 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 always amazed by how many people in technology and logistics are from Israel. Yeah, there's definitely quite a lot of innovation going on in Israel. There is a a, a name that's been tagged to Israel, the startup nation. I, I think it it's a mixture of things why Israel became like that. We're not going to go that direction. There's books about this. But I grew up there. I served my time there. Then I moved to Japan for... You were you're in the military there? I was in the military. It's, it's... I worked for a company and we had our technology office in the back in Israel. And I remember my boss was from Israel and he said it was a Silicon Valley company. And he said that the reason Israel's done so well in technology, he says, is they've done a really good job with the military. And he says, selecting technologists and engineers, he said, but on top of that, he says, you, you really do get a sense for how to succeed when you're in the, in the Israeli military. I was like, I'm not looking forward to, to uh, being conscripted, but uh, I know a lot of people have had a positive experience. Well, I mean, they, they, they probably look back and say, I guess that was good for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it it's definitely was good for me. I was dealing with technology and innovation even then. So it's kind of it definitely gave me a head start on, you know, when we are very young, it's very difficult to get a real experience in life. And that was a great experience. I did left Israel maybe when I was 21, slightly above 21 years old. I didn't mean to leave. I moved to Japan for a while. What took you to Japan? It was kind of a trip in Asia that I was looking to do. There's many people doing trips after the army, uh, you know, after the service. You kind of want to relax. I... Kind of a gap year? Yeah. So I was, all right, let's 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 see what's happening in Japan. I kind of uh, build a small business there. But after a year and a half, I decided, all right, I'm on the way back to Israel. So I kept traveling in Asia and somehow I got a job in Thailand with, with the airlines. So I, I joined the Elal Israeli airline and I said, I'll stay for a year. But that year became 20 years. Oh my God. So I lived in Thailand for 20 years. What I city? Bangkok. I lived in Bangkok. I traveled all Asia for work and for pleasure as well, but I studied in Thailand. I saw my education background uh, 
I have bachelor in computer engineering, master of telecommunication science, and then I took a PhD of management and organization development. Well, you took all that in, in Bangkok? All that in Bangkok while I was working. So it's uh, it's kind of, uh, I, I, f I felt bored only working, so I kind of, all right, let's do something else. Let's learn. Let's. Uh... Well, there's lots to do. I've, I've been to Bang Bangkok a lot, and um, I always say it's hard it's hard to say that it's not the party capital of this planet <laughs> i i know every time it, I, I would it definitely probably, could be <laughs> i think i was probably to thailand i don't know seven eight times and i always remember we first off you're in a different time zone so we'd always be like you know 12 hours time difference so six in the morning feels like six at night so it was easy to stay up late but then we worked like crazy and then There'd always be like, well, we're taking you out to this place tonight. And, and I, I used to say, I worked 50 hours, 60 hours, and go out every night. I felt I came back 10 years older. But <laughs> 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 well, what a great city. I, I enjoyed the people. Exactly the case. And, you know, after 20 years, I felt 200 years old. I said, you know, I <laughs> need to move on. <laughs> yeah. So where'd you go from there? So I spent a few years with the LAL, Israeli airline. I was heading the cargo for Asia Pacific. Then I started an IT startup, about 20 employees. We did quite well. The company is still there. I moved away from that. After that, moved to another freight forwarder and then recruited by Maersk Logistics at that time called Damco to be the head of air freight for Asia Pacific. That's when I actually joined Maersk. It was still back in Thailand. I spent four years with Maersk in Asia. Then I moved to do quite a similar role of heading the air freight for North and Latin America based in Panama. So I moved oh, with nice. the company to Panama. I lived there for two years, moved to Florida because I was spending most of my time in the U.S. rather than in Panama, except the weekends. Family kind of definitely was not happy. So we moved to somewhere closer so the travels will be less. But then in the U.S., I, I kind of branched out from air freight. I said I need to do some other different roles. It, and the company was very kind to give me an opportunity. So I was heading our supply chain development product. And, and for us, supply chain development is actually re-engineering of supply chains of our large customers. So people that are looking to kind of improve either by reducing cost of their supply chain or improving transit time or reduction of carbon emissions. And that gave me... Um, in order to fulfill that role well, I took a few online training by MIT, which uh, helped me to really view supply chain in a different, you know, with, with different sight. And, and that kind of brought to the next and next roles that I took, which heading our uh, warehousing and distribution. And now they basically uh, heading uh, the, the innovation and strategic growth for, for North America. So that's kind of how I started to wow change. wow that's that that's quite the quite the uh quite the path you took to your current job but um it, when we were talking the other day uh, i mentioned uh when i think of the shipping companies i always think uh, there's i don't th my, my first thought is an innovation my first thought is they have those giant ships that put and then they own the containers right so that have maersk on the side and i think 
they do things similar to the way they did things 20 years ago. I mean, and, and generally speaking, if you find a company that has to spend billions of dollars on assets like ships and containers and warehouses, you think, well, there's no money left over for this. But you guys figured it out. And there is a lot of innovation going on. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I wanted to touch on, for those who are not part of the system, who don't move shipping containers every day, take us through like if I was, let's say I was an automotive company. I understand automotive. And I say, I need to move a whole bunch of parts on a regular basis from Asia. Let's just say Thailand, because we're both familiar. Walk me through that process real quick. Just just five or seven bullet points so we can level set everybody what Maersk normally does. Yeah. So the normal process would be slightly different than how Maersk is doing that. So I describe what is a normal process, then we can kind of from there take it, what is the difference with, with Maersk. Normal process is that, of course, you will prepare your shipments, you will call either your forwarder or your carrier, you book it, somebody will come and pick it up. It's normally going to be a third party or fourth party there. So you have somebody... You would drop off a container with me or... or... Yeah, so somebody will come to pick up a container from you. The trucking company probably will be some somebody you have a contract with. You'll get your documentation. You'll book a specific vessel shipment or voyage you'll get on the vessel the vessel will arrive or, or maybe it's an air freight so you'll get on an airplane you'll get to the other side somebody else will do a custom clearance for you then either you you ask the carrier to route it into the inland port or you ask somebody else another company to to actually do that and then finally, somebody will bring it to your DC factory, whatever it is that you need it. So normally there will be anywhere between four to six different touch points and different companies that... A lot of different handle. players, a lot of different companies involved. And I, I always say also there's different time zones, different cultures, different languages, dozens of hands, lots of different companies, the government's involved on both sides. It's... It's very complicated compared to over the, uh, the domestic transportation that we're used to. And I should also point out, before we had containerized shipping, which Maersk probably is one of the innovators of that, before we had this containerized shipping, the world trade that we have wasn't really possible. I mean, before those containers made the cost, and the cost was so high to load and unload a ship that most of the stuff that we currently move wouldn't move. And I, I'm, there's a book, and I'll uh, I'll put a link in the show notes called The Box, and it it transformed logistics, maybe unlike any other thing out there, short of the wheel. So it, it, it's a fantastic system that really enabled the world trade that we have today. All the stuff was in our house; most of it came in a shipping container. So otherwise, you'd have to get it from the guy in town <laughs> at a much higher cost. So. Anyway, so you just described the way it kind of traditionally has happened. Absolutely. How is Maersk doing it differently? Before I move on to describe it, I just want to share that you you said it's complex. Yes, it's definitely complex. It's not only complex, it's also kind of broken. And I'll hint you to something I want to talk about slightly later. 
we looked at data before COVID started, so we cannot blame COVID uh, impact on anything. So we look at data of about 1 million shipments between China and the US. You will think it's the easiest per ports countries in the world. You know, it's, it's relatively easy sailing. There's no much in between to, to block thing or to do stuff. And we find out that from the moment the cargo is inside the port until it's ready to leave the port in the US. So from port entering to port leaving from both sides, the transit time is 34 days to 74 days. Let me repeat that, 34 to 74. You have 40 days of, wow, what's going on with these shipments? Now, if you look at the end-to-end -end from factory to, to DC or factory to wherever you need a cargo, it's around 30 days to 120 days. So it's really huge accordion. It's almost like a normal distribution, but with a very long tail at the end. Yes. And, and that's what's causing supply chain not to work well when you have issues because... Everyone you ask, if you ask the automotive guys that want to be just in time or you ask a retail, what do they do? So they always telling you, I'm planning for the worst case scenario. I'm planning for the 90 something percentile of this transit time. So everything needs to be based on that. And now I'm basically creating a lot of inventory sitting somewhere, either it's in my warehouses or in my provider warehouses or somebody is actually carrying costs for that. And not only carrying the cost of the goods, but also, you know, warehouses full of that, more transportation, things that maybe will never be used because market change, demand change are basically been bought and, and kind of transport. So that that's basically to lead me to the, the point that we saw that a few years back and, and we said, this is not right. This is not what our customers is asking from us. They want from us a much more reliable transportation. And we can only do that if we can enable an end-to-end -end supply chain for our customers. So Maersk listened to that and basically our, we, we grew up our capability. We brought back Damco into the group. So it's it's one Maersk. Now, uh, Damco was just a, I shouldn't say just a freight forwarder. It was a huge company, is a huge company, but it was a it freight was a forwarder. forwarder. But was, was acting separate, not really in in. in not integrated with Maersk. So the decision about five, six years ago was to bring back uh, Damco into the group. So it's become one Maersk again. And not only that, all the elements that we don't have the right capabilities, let's either develop it or buy that. So Maersk went on, on a shopping list, basically, uh, and bought many different uh, warehousing and distribution companies around the world, bought IT companies, bought capabilities in so custom brokerage recently bought few uh, and leased few aircrafts to support our growth so really Maersk become an end-to-end -end integrator for for logistics and, and ensuring that we can deliver an end-to-end -end solution for customer based on their needs not based on uh, multiple handovers that slow down the way right right and, and by the way i want to point something out we talked about this the other day when I was still doing automotive, I was doing lean or value stream mapping and do these workshops. And you are always going from order to cash. And I was working with Chrysler's um, supply base. And so huge companies, billion dollar companies. And the, one of the things when you start mapping the process and they say, oh, and it comes from our warehouse, we would circle the warehouse in red. And 
say that that has to go. We were not. You're not going to have a warehouse. This this is ridiculous because we want you to. We want if you want to be lean, you're going to really reduce kind of carrying inventory. Well, then when you get into it, they say, oh well, that comes from the reason we have the warehouse or the reason we have excess inventory is that comes from China or that comes from uh, Japan or that comes from somewhere in Asia, and you can't do just in time when you have that. Well, you just described the 34 to 104 days. I can't do just in time with that. So what you're doing is carrying sometimes millions, tens of millions of dollars of extra inventory, which is just looked at as wasteful. And it's that when you can take that inventory out, it just drops to the bottom line. I mean, it's carrying, and by the way, another thing happens when you carry that much inventory it goes obsolete. So I, I told you this the other day. When I was shipping stuff to Thailand or to China to build cars there, things would go obsolete on the ocean. And so they would get it and throw it out in China. So imagine this supply chain where I've built this part from raw goods all the way to the finished part, shipped it to China, and then they get it and throw it away. Um, and when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about saving saving money and saving the planet at the same time, you can't do that. And part of it is because that long, unpredictable supply chain. And so anyway, enough of my blather. You were talking about getting Maersk going end to end, which in my mind is from order to cash. And all those handoff to other companies that uh, are no longer in your system or aren't in your system, those are... Those are challenging sometimes. So I like the end-to-end move. So talk a little bit more about that. So, of course, we don't have to use anybody. We are controlling the assets. We are controlling the move. And I think one of the important elements here is when you hand over from problems in supply chain will always occur. It's, it's not that a storm or a strike or, or a, a port congestion will not happen because it's now end-to-end with MERSC. Those things can still happen and, and could be beyond of the control of anybody. But the beauty of one company really taking it end-to-end is now if one problem occur, occur uh, along the supply chain, you can still care and basically move it faster in the next step because you're trying to recover the lost time that happened maybe in, in a step before that. When when you move it between one company to another, everybody's basically, sorry, it's not us. What do you want? I'm not going to expedite anything for you unless you pay so much more. Right. And this is where we are trying to now, in, in one of the innovative uh, things we are, we are working on, we're basically trying to build a dynamic routing kind of algorithm that it's, first of all, find what is the best route to achieve minimum variation in transit time. So bring it as much closer to the time that you need it. So instead of having a plus minus 40 days, have a plus minus three days. So it's much more kind of concise that you can really trust it. So the algorithm is important element, but also how to maneuver that, how to handle coordinated or, or basically, let's say, um, orchestrated. This is the, the elements that we're building uh, as one of the new innovation uh, things yeah. that is not specifically technology, but it's a product uh, that will be available to our customer. Right. And I, and I think about this, this end to end, when you're managing it from 
end-to-end, you might say, oh, we've been shipping to the West Coast, but there's a problem there. There's, you know, earlier we're talking about a port, a port strike in LA, well, the whole West Coast, right? And you might have said, ah, we're also looking at a potential railroad strike. I think it's been averted. Well, most of those containers, a lot of those containers, we could go to LA, get on a rail a car and go to the East Coast. 80% of the population of the United States is east of the Mississippi. So a lot of the freight would come to LA or Long Beach or somewhere out there, go by rail. So you guys, if you own owned end to end, you say, well, we can also move it to the East Coast and minimize minimize the travel to congested ports and minimize, we don't have to do rail, we can do trucking. And when you own it end to end, you can do that. You can make that adjustment for me and become more predictable, which um, you previous, uh, Maersk wasn't necessarily in charge of that. I, I, I shouldn't say in charge of it, they're moving it. But my freight forwarder might have made that decision and maybe it was the wrong decision. And Maersk might know I know Maersk knows more. <laughs> That's why they have 100,000 employees. <laughs> I can tell you that we actually tested it and, and it works. We we worked with one of the large retailers in the U.S. To, to actually test this whole idea of can we reduce the variation? Can we actually bring things in much more organized fashion? And, and we were working on that just before COVID started. And we, of course, we didn't know COVID will start. And we decided, okay, let's take 60, uh, 60 days of worth of shipment. It was a few hundred containers in that. And let's bring, and we took not the easiest routes, but not the most difficult one. We decided let's go from Vietnam to Texas. That was kind of, uh, their location was in Texas, origin came from Vietnam. So it's not an easy place, Vietnam to, to Texas, because first of all, it's not West Coast immediately, which is normally the easiest from Asia. And it's not China, it's Vietnam. That's normally you need another stop along the way. Sometimes there is a direct right. uh, route, sometimes not. Then COVID hit and started to create a mess in the whole supply chain. You know, it was the beginning of COVID. But we still managed to bring 94% of the shipments within the plus minus three days that was promised. That's really significant because I can tell you as a receiver of shipping containers on both in China and Thailand and here. I, I had an old uh, supply guy and he would always say, your your stuff is on a slow boat from China or on a slow boat to China. It's an old phrase that I don't know from a movie or something, but it was always kind of like, I don't know when it's going to get there. You tell me. <laughs> so it, it it's definitely worked right but but it also brought us to the realization that we need many more things to work along the way beyond just controlling a shipment or have one company i'll give you an example a lot of these goods passing our warehouses either a transload warehouse or fulfillment warehouse that we have either somewhere around the world north america have quite a lot of warehouses nowadays for Maersk. But then we realized that if we want to bring things and enable them in a much more consistent way, we need to standardize the way we work in those warehouses and actually improve that so it will be very reliable and not always depends on, on if people want to come to work or not come to work. And, and certain of the jobs are 
very difficult jobs in the warehouse that you're carrying boxes, you, you hurt your back. It's, it's not an ideal job. So we started to work a lot about automation, a lot about robotics inside the warehouse, different machine learning algorithms that are helping us to predict and understand what's really happened so we can support the people that working there. And, and all this is actually helping standardization of the whole supply chain and ensure that even if you brought it all the way to, to the port, well, now it's not stuck because of a different element. So you guys, you, you're automating and digitizing those warehouses. And this is a common topic on my podcast is if I right now had to go get a job somewhere and you said, hey, go get a job either at a warehouse or at somewhere in the gig economy. I was like, I'll drive around and deliver food. I'll pick people up. I'm not going to work in a warehouse. 100%. However, if you said this is a highly automated warehouse, you're part of the supply chain, you're going to be using the latest and greatest technologies within there. I was like, OK, that's a that's a good job. Yep. That That's a job that has opportunities. And. I've heard also that the challenge with finding good people it goes away a little bit when you say, hey, here's what you're going to be trained to use. I don't know everyone probably sees the same Amazon commercials I do, but they show all those people working in their factory or their factories in their warehouses. Warehouses and they talk about the opportunities, you know, for 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 working on robotics, working on the latest and greatest scanning technologies and it's not about a strong back and walking 10 miles a day because if that's the job they aren't going to stay <laughs> yeah 100 percent. you are absolutely on the point here before that it was people that come and goes doesn't want to stay they don't want to be part of this because they know it's a temporary job it's unhealthy for their it's boring sometimes you know it's really not what they Imagine it's much easier to go and, and do food delivery or people delivery right. nowadays with some app. But when we bring those technologies, actually, you see more and more people enjoying working with that. We provide the training and education around innovation to people. So they actually manage to develop themselves and manage to actually enjoy the work. Now it's not tedious and physical. It's more of, oh, I'm working in, in super cool technology environment. I have a nice story to tell to my friend, to my family, and I'm proud of myself right. to do that. So Yeah. I heard uh, one of my guests said this uh, not so long ago, but it stuck with me. As they said, one very large company recognized this, and they said, nobody retires from our warehouse. And what they meant was we made this a miserable. And, and, and I say this, I'm being an automotive guy. When you used to work in automotive, in the assembly line, it was when you came home at the end of the day, you were exhausted, you were dirty, you're sweaty, and potentially injured. Maybe you hurt your fingers doing something. But over time, you'd hurt your back or your knees or for something from standing. We got rid of all those jobs in the assembly plants. They've Now there are more technicians in those plants. And if they see a job that can't be done easily, all day long, they say we have to automate something. And I think the same thing is happening with a warehouse, I'm sure, with the, this part of your investments. I love that. So, so, so you guys have warehouse. How many warehouses do you have in North America? In North America, we have today 169 warehouses. Woo! Yeah, yeah, I can tell you that three years ago, it was 20. So, so that's part of the end-to-end. -end. That's quite of the end-to-end. -end. That's definitely was a... Uh, 
growth and investment that we put to, to open new warehouses, but also some acquisitions that uh, took place. We have three different acquisitions here only in North America that are related to warehousing or distribution. And, and that brought us really the right elements, right strength and capabilities. I saw you acquired Pilot. That was in the news not so long ago. And that they're a big player. Yes. But again, compared to Maris, nobody's really a big player. <laughs> yeah, there is, I'm sure there is somebody. But uh, yeah, we acquired Pilot uh, almost a year ago. Uh, before that, Visible SCM. Before that, it was a, a performance team. So definitely three very strong companies with very good capabilities that came on top of the capabilities that we have already with, with the 20 warehouses and kind of brought a very good people, knowledge, and, and asset in, into the game. So it's, it's definitely helping to serve. I'm assuming some of this uh, innovation that you guys are working on is also uh, related to the digital. So I'm assuming you have technology that goes from order to cash, end to end, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, so yes, we have a lot of digital uh, technology we are working on. I'll give you one example. Uh, we have certain location we can't convert the container unloading to become a, a, an automation. We still need to do it in a manual fashion. But if you ask somebody that worked there, how long will it take to unload this container? One person will say six hours, another one will say eight hours, another one 10 hours. And it's kind of like, hmm, that's like, how do you improve something you cannot even know how long it will take you? And how can you incentivize people to do a better job if you don't know what is what it's supposed to do? You know, so we kind of tried multiple technology technologies. Uh, we, we, we started with the labor management system, kind of something that allowing us, was supposed to allow us to understand how people behave and doing stuff. We felt miserably. It was very interesting to see that you know, if you don't scan, there is certain environment you don't need to scan stuff. And you don't scan, there's nothing, there's no input into the system. There is no way to understand what's really going on. Then I recall that I saw in my air freight times, I saw that Lufthansa actually did some work about turnaround of aircraft. And, and they kind of put cameras outside of, of the gate and, and they, they learn with the vision how is the performance of the catering? How is the refueling has been done? What about the cleaners? What about the passenger? And I said, why can't we do similar thing in our environment? We search around, nobody was doing something like that. So we decided let's create something like that. So basically we put cameras that basically learned the behavior of people, learned how we're doing things, understand how much already been done. Are they doing manually? Are they doing it with the cart? Are they doing it with the forklift? And now we are at 84% accuracy of when it will be, when the container will be done. Now we can actually come to people and say, guys, we can incentivize you. If you want to be part of it, we're not forcing anybody, but if you want to be part of it and, and you want to beat the clock, let's call it this way, any minutes that you go below, you're getting extra incentive. So, you know, it will help us, it will help you, it will help the customer. Everybody's happy here. So these technologies definitely come from a digital type of innovation that we're working on. Yeah. So I'm assuming that as you went end to end, you also are probably working with some of the same customers, but 
going further for them. So where before you would say I dropped it off at the port of LA and that's it. Now I'm not, but now you're part of it from, from all the way from China or Korea, all the way to the factory to or wherever. Yeah, to door or even to couch, depending on what type of customer it is, right? And I can tell you that this was... Are you doing uh, e-commerce stuff too? We do a lot of e-commerce, yes, yes. So you're actually managing e-commerce facilities for, for of course. people? We do a lot of e-commerce. We manage that. We, we, we do pick and pack for our customers. We ship it. Uh, to, we, we don't deliver today small items, but the true pilot, we deliver also to home big and bulky uh, with white, glo- white glove services. So we have all that capabilities as well. Uh, we are definitely looking to, to grow in the e-commerce uh, capabilities. But one point that you kind of mentioned working with the customers, I definitely want to share that not only that we work with the customers to move the goods, but also to understand the pain points and to work with them on innovative ideas on how can we change that. And we create kind of an ecosystem around the innovation center that we built. So we, of course, have different internal stakeholders that are part of that ecosystem, but we have many external stakeholders where customers is definitely a core stakeholders. We do have academia that we work with. MIT is one of the biggest relationships, but we have oh, many wow. different other universities. We're working with certain government entity that would like to promote and, and develop certain areas. And of course, we're working with a lot of venture capitals and startups because that's where we can try to develop totally new things that nobody yet developed in a much very in, in a much faster way than we could develop them ourselves. We don't want to do everything ourselves. We definitely want to start working with the community and with other entities to, to do it together. Right. So as you invest in, say, so if you're working with, you guys obviously have some money to invest, you're working with venture capitalists to identify the next great innovations and invest in those and be, as an investor, as an owner, a small, maybe a large part of the ownership of those companies, you can keep an eye on it. And when it's ready, you can fold it into your company or just use the use the innovation at Maersk. So so we, we definitely do two folds with startups. We have Maersk Growth, which is a corporate venture capital. And Maersk Growth is investing in startups and we work in very close collaboration with them. So they recommend startups to us. We recommend startups to them and, and we test it. The second way that we work with startup is actually giving them the opportunity. If it's it's a newer startup, really early stage, they come us, pitch an idea. If we like the idea, let's go and test it. If we like it, but it's not exact fit for us, we, hey, why don't you move five degrees here or two degrees there? And we will give you the first opportunity. And if they are more mature startup that already have a product, of course, it's very difficult to maneuver them left and right. So. If it's a good fit for us, we will give an opportunity. We will do a proof of concept, test that uh, solution. And if successful, of course, deploy. We have very good you know, story, success story with startups. Of course, here and there you have failure as well. But Right. But you've, you've developed, a, a, that's basically an innovation pipeline. Exactly. And I've heard this said before that it's very difficult sometimes when you're a large company that has operational goals for you know your customers you can't innovate in that 
in operational environment because you're you're measuring yourself. You said we expect ninety eight percent delivery on time, and somebody says, "Well, we were innovating, and some of them were late this yeah. week." You're like, "Oh no, 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 <laughs> we, can't, we can't do that. We we'll experiment offline." Absolutely. So this is definitely a a difficult when we started, we're like, how can we do that? You know, you can't start and go and build new solution if you didn't prove that, that it's going to work. Nobody is trusting some ideas just, they want to see it in, in action. So uh, we definitely do a lot of proof of concept. We we start in a small scale. We normally do go into a live environment to do those proof of concept, but we take very small scale that it won't impact. And we can always we always build a, a, a back say, a kind of rollback a, a measurement. So so we can always oh, oh it doesn't work. Let's go manual or let's go the old way. It, it's part of the deal. And then if we really success with the small scale, then we increase and increase and, and kind of taking it in stages. But as you said, it's very difficult to innovate when you're part of a large company that's doing things on a regular basis. So we also decided to build the physical uh, office of innovation, which will be ready around March in, in Jersey City, just in front of the Manhattan skyline which we decided to do it separate from our head office for North America, which is also in New Jersey, just because we want to have that kind of ability to to think different and behave a little bit different, but still be part of, of the big Maersk organization. And so you'll have a separate innovation office, but I think you told me the other day, you'll have people who work for the innovation office worldwide. That's absolutely right. So here in North America, we have people in Silicon Valley, we have people in LA, New Jersey, Savannah, Miami, it's really everywhere that we have. And we, we're trying to tap into the local community and ecosystem of those locations because there is a value to add. Of course, LA with the biggest sport, uh, there is a lot of different things happening there. Silicon Valley with all the startups and the, the, the VC that's created there. New Jersey, the second largest or sometimes last few months, the largest port. Yeah, I was just going to say the largest ports are now. Yeah, in the last few months, it's the largest. Of course, the fear of what will happen in LA moves a lot of cargo here. Savannah is a growing place that we are working to to kind of build an ecosystem as well. So in all these locations, we definitely, we don't work in isolation. We we work with the universities. We work with the governments there. We work with the startups and and cooperates in those locations because we believe it's it's something that can help everybody, not just us. Yeah, I, lo- I love what you guys are doing. And again, I, I said this before, but I'll say it again. When I think of the big shipping containers that I see, you see, a, a, I drive by a rail, railroad and it has all the, all the shipping containers that say Maersk on it. And you see the, the big ships. If you go to, if you go to uh, Ocean Shipping on Google, You'll you'll see Maersk ships. That's what you see. That's I I think they have been doing things the same way forever. But to your point, they have innovated. It's not the same way anymore. No, and um, I I think it's also it's you said you guys were doing it before COVID, but I think there was a recognition, especially during COVID, that God, we all have to figure out a way to get our. We had great supply chains. None of us starved during COVID. Uh, there was some disruption though. And we found that some of our supply chains were a little more brittle than we wanted them to be. And the solution you're talking about is bringing that end-to-end with resiliency and with the ability to collaborate because you're all 
under the Maersk umbrella. And, you know, handoffs happen all the time in our business and they will continue. And I'm sure you guys have lots of partners, but handoffs are sometimes where the problems arise, where you say, oh, I, I dropped it at LA and the port took 15 extra days to get it through customs. And then the trucking company didn't have anybody available. And then when it went to a warehouse, they were backed up. And all of a sudden, there's an extra 45 days, 50 days added to my shipment. And Maersk is like, hey, it's out of our hands. We handed it off. Not anymore. Now, you say, that's within our system, for one. So we can tell you where it's at. But it's also within our hands. It's in our warehouse. It's in our... It's in our warehouse. It's with our trucking company. Completely different. Yeah, absolutely right. And I can, And by the way, I, I think I should ask this. Who's the sweet spot for Maersk and this end-to-end solution with all this new innovation you guys are bringing? Basically, retailers, automotives, tech, FMCG, multiple verticals that we have that all are kind of everybody that move goods you know from a to b is 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 really a, a potential to enjoy this this type of services and we have them from all different type of uh, verticals that you can think of yeah well again i i i said it before it's and it's the truth virtually everyone listening to this podcast has been touched by Maersk. you're probably sitting in a chair or on a couch, or walking in shoes that came on a Maersk boat or ship. I mean, there's no way to avoid them. <laughs> Not that we would want to, but <laughs> but that stuff is going to come better going forward. Not that it's been bad in the past, but we had we have had big upgrades, it sounds like, in this process. Yep. Excellent. Well, well I, I really appreciate you taking the time. So I want to ask, I want to ask a, a little bit here. You can figure out... Uh, what order you want to answer this in, but what's next for you? What's ne- next for Maersk? And what's next for this industry? And when I say this industry, I'll say the, the shipping industry going from end to end. And I don't think everybody in the shipping industry is looking at it that way, but I know some are probably doing something similar. Yeah. So for me, basically, I'm, I'm definitely enjoying this innovation portion. We are working on few very interesting projects, uh, for example, digital twin for warehouses, something that to really allow you to understand what's going on in the warehouses, what is how you simulate new ideas, new so things. So explain what it mean by, you mean by digital twin. Okay, so it's it, it, today what you know about your warehouse is either from your warehouse management system, WMS, or from the people that live and, and work in that location. If you want to compare different warehouses, or if you want to kind of say, skew information of my customer is about to change, it's a new season, things will behave differently, how it will behave. There is no clue. It's only about gut feeling of people and past knowledge that sits in somebody's head. And maybe true and maybe not, because you, you can't really knows how it's going to be work. If you want to introduce a new technology, let's say certain robotics, how the warehouse now going to behave, you want to introduce another customer to a warehouse that is not fully dedicated to one customer. How, how the flow will behave there. All these type of elements are not really easy to understand today. 
the, the information in WMS is in certain granularity. It's not too granular. It's quite high level. And, and of course, you can't simulate out of this anything. So one of the things that we are currently working is is how we take that plus different sources of information, triangulate them, and really give us a real-time understanding of what is going on in the warehouse, how systems working there, how machines working there, how people working there. And not only understanding that, the moment that you're understanding for many different warehouses, you take the machine learning out of this and you start to basically build simulation models that are telling you, if I change this element and that element, that's the results going to be look like. And you kind of start to say, what is my ultimate result that I want to reach? Let's see which technology or which method of work is the best to reach that uh, result. So that will be the next step of it, of the simulation. So I have my regular, what happens in real life in the warehouse, and then I'll have a digital twin that kind of reflects what I'm currently doing. But if I want, I can do some scenario planning. Like if I was to say, I'm going to move rather than take my ship to LA, I'm going to take it to Virginia. What would that do? And, and by the way, many companies did that. That's why we're seeing so much traffic that used to be on the West Coast and the East Coast. So I'm imagining you guys are doing that already for some of your customers. But that scenario planning, maybe you would have said before COVID, what are, what are the highest risk countries, right, to be doing business in? And maybe you say, well, we're really, by the way, I think like Apple computer, Apple phones, whatever, overly exposed to the China supply chain right now. If, if somebody was to do some digital twin there, they might say, you know what, let's let's diversify our supply chains in some other locations. But Absolutely. And I love that that because this is how we're going to become more resilient. This is how we're going to reduce risk and reduce time and reduce costs for ourselves is to be able to do that digital twin and that scenario planning. But you can't do it if you don't have the data. And you can't do it if the data is in 10 different silos. <laughs> so. Absolutely. This is exactly the problem. You know, it sits somewhere. Maybe you have the data, maybe you don't. And if you have it, it's like all over the place. You, it's very difficult to stitch it. I took you a little off track. So getting back to it, what's next for you? What's next for, for Maersk? And then what's next for the yeah. industry? So, so bring, bring the innovation center that we build. Uh, I, I, beside innovation center, I also have engineering groups. I have real estate and I have maintenance. So it all fits together. So I'm, I'm looking how to bring it really to the next level. For the company is really to, to enable that dynamic routing that we were talking about, allowing customers, uh, you know, to, to, to allow us to bring their cargo in much better shape and time so they don't have to spend so much extra money on inventory, on supply chain, on warehouses. And, and today all warehouses are full. You know, and, and you sit on goods. Why do you need all these goods? You know, it, it doesn't really make sense. You, you, I, I don't say that you need to go back to just in time because it's very difficult to, to sustain that in, in all industries. But I'm sure there is a much more, it, there is much better solution on how to trust the supply chain that it can work on, on a much precise transit time rather than the big accordion that we kind of. Right. If you if if you could just take it, say, 
hey, guys, I guarantee the latest it's going to be is, well, you'll never end up with a 104 days again. You're going to, it's the longest is going to be 54 or, or, or 44. And I imagine you get better every single day with the pr- predictive analytics. 100%. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the near, the near future. Yep. So what do you see is happening with the industry? Again, I think we saw so much. So you guys were in the press so much during COVID where we all saw that big jam up of boats on the West Coast and everyone just kind of associates it. Oh, these are just, these are big, big shipping companies, but it seems like you guys are so much more than that. So what do you see next for the industry? The, the shipping. I think I think I think few companies in the industry definitely understand that kind of consolidation of and enabling different capabilities is a key thing. I'm sure there will be others that do not agree with that idea, but I believe that that's where they will stuck in 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 the past methods of oh I'm only doing this and it's it's become more of a commoditized type of business if you don't really add value. So definitely, uh, I, I see I see few companies following uh, the the idea of of what Maersk is doing, and, and I think that will accelerate it within few companies that can afford it and that can actually see the value in that. Of course, uh, nearshoring, non-nearshoring, this is kind of a, a debate that happens forever. I still believe that no matter what, there will be a need of of long transportation. Of course, the whole industry is going into decarbonization and reduction of greenhouse uh, gases. And that's something that Maersk is, is leading in that. But, but the industry in general finally is really pushing to do things around that. So we will see more and more happening in, in that arena. So I believe things will become more efficient, less damaging. And, and there is a, I see a very good hope, nice light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, that we are really bringing supply chain into new arenas and, and new days compared to the way it used to be in the past. Yeah. And, and by the way, anybody who follows the press on this stuff will know there was a long time where these big these big companies and did not make the kind of money. They were they were low, low margin businesses. And everyone looked and said, how, well, how do we make sure that these companies are are viable? And then during COVID, there was a lot of money made and and was like, where's all this profit? Well, that profit now, I mean, some of it is being invested into making all of this so the supply chain that we trust better. And again, this end-to-end idea. And by the way, you and I were laughing about this. I One of the things that uh, drives me crazy is when somebody says, we have end-to-end visibility. And I say, from when to when? From the time I pick it up at your place to the time I drop it at your customer. It's like two days on the road, three days on the road, whatever. And end-to-end for most supply chain people is from the time I gave the order to my my supplier in North Korea, or not North Korea, in Korea, South Korea, to the time it got to me from order to cash, right? Absolutely. End-to-end is really an end-to-end, not just portion of, of the... Right. Journey. We have too many silos. And I'm sure that's kind of part of the your plan in this innovation is I don't want to have a trucking silo and a warehousing silo and a, a port silo and a ocean silo. It, it, it can't work. We can't have that digital twin. We can never do the scenario planning and the collaboration that we all desperately need if we don't get connected. I, I, I joke about it, but every time when we came up with the transportation management system, everyone said, 
oh my God, we've solved all the problems. Mm. We solved a lot of problems. And we have <laughs> warehouse management system. We thought, boy, does this solve a lot of problems. The problem now is all these technologies on an island. How do we connect them so we can have that end to end? Absolutely. So the way we met, I was introduced to you by the fine folks over at Manifest, and you were speaking at Manifest. So what, tell, tell us a little bit about that, that speech. I, I was speaking last year in Manifest. This year, we have uh, I have two other colleagues uh, going to speak, one from Amherst Broad, so the CVC, a corporate venture capital, and another one is a colleague from our transportation uh, and that will describe a little bit what we're doing in that arena. I'm there definitely to meet. Oh, I'll see you there customers and, and yeah and, and talk we have uh, the podcast booth over there so it's kind of going to be uh, we definitely oh yeah i'm going to do some podcasts from manifest yes exactly. i'm looking forward so to definitely it. looking to to be visible there to work with the different players in that want to change supply chain and and to work together on that yep so what other conferences will you be at tpm is normally something that we are oh about. yeah out in los angeles as a as an ocean realize another conference that that we definitely have a presence we we kind of uh, we have some conferences about mhe so different material handling uh, there is one in chicago once a year and another one every alternative in atlanta so we we are in promat or so we are exploring technologies robotics etc in those places and, and there are here and there a smaller one that that we are part of as well Excellent. Excellent. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I'll put a link to Maersk website or, and any other, anything you can give me about Maersk innovation. I will put a link to that in the show notes. And I'll also look for the link to the book, The Box, just so if if you're interested in understanding more about this industry and why it exists because of that box, that I would highly recommend that book. One other thing I want to put you on the spot here for a second, Eris. Who else should I interview on my podcast? Someone, not 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 necessarily a Maris person, but some smart smart young man like yourself or a smart young woman. I will not give you a specific name, but I'll give you a direction, right? MIT have the Center of Transport and Logistics. There is right. smart people over there. You'll have to introduce me. <laughs> I can definitely introduce you to a few of them. And that they're, they're talking about very, very innovative idea, very, uh, you know, blow your mind the things that they're working over there. And I, I think it's it's worth talking to them. You know, they are definitely kind of uh, uh, great people. I think it makes a lot of sense to talk. I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to people from Jason Miller from Michigan State. I've talked to the people down at uh, Arkansas. University of Arkansas, which is right there in Walmart country, they are working on stuff that we'll be working on in a year or two. So I think it's always helpful to connect. Well, I appreciate that. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time. I'm I'm kind of blown away by what you guys are up to because uh, again, I, I I don't associate the big shipping lines with innovation, but that's exactly what you guys are doing. And congratulations on that. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here and thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.